Hello and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Paul's letter to the Galatians is what we today would call spicy. And once you know the story, you might, if you were in Paul's place, be a bit spicy too. Lead teacher Jeff Norris continues the series Radical Renewal with this sermon entitled A Radical Gospel, Grace Alone by Faith Alone which covers Acts chapter 15, verses 1 to 21. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Father, thank you for um, your continued leadership over your bride, your church. And uh, certainly, Father, we, we don't have to tell you that as we consider your bride throughout throughout our city, throughout our country, and even the world. Uh, What a a year of of difficulty, of strong opinions in many different directions. And so Lord, we have leaned on you and continue to lean on you so desperately to provide us with wisdom to lead your church in the way that, uh, that we think and sense that you're leading. And so, Father, we, we pray even in this, uh, the, this moving forward with continuing to uh, pull back, if you will, some of these protocols. Uh, Father, would you bless it? Would you, as, as more and more are getting um, vaccinated, as more and more are experiencing herd immunity and the, the various things that are coming with this, may you keep us in a place of, of health, Lord. And Father, may we be sensitive as a people uh, to each other. May we love and encourage one another in a way that wherever we are in the process of, of, this, uh, of this situation, Lord, that we would be sympathetic, compassionate, encouraging, and that there would be a place for each of us here to worship and to experience the, the body of Christ in powerful ways. So Lord, we pray as we open your word that we would uh, be sensitive to your spirit in that as well, that you, O Holy Spirit, would lead us, speak to us, press into us deeply the truth of your word, soften and quicken our hearts, Lord, with the power of your word. We ask in the powerful, matchless name of Jesus, amen. So it was the summer of 1999 that I spent the summer in Panama City Beach on a summer project with Campus Crusade for Christ, now known as Crew. I spent 10 weeks in Panama City uh, being discipled, being uh, trained in, in what it means to follow Jesus, to share my faith, to tell people about the great news of the gospel of grace. Rachel and I had begun dating that year before, the sophomore year in college, before we went on, uh, on this summer excursion. I went to Panama City, she went on a summer project with Campus Crusade to San Diego, so we spent the summer apart. Now, many of you uh, who are younger are gonna find this absolutely bewilder- bewildering, what I'm about to say. Uh, I spent two to three nights a week uh, on a payphone outside the motel that we stayed in, and I had, a, um, I had a calling card that had about 400 digits on it 
that you had to memorize, that you had to punch in so that you had a prepaid card that would allow you to call long distance. And through letters, get this, letters, we had to coordinate when she would be at the payphone outside her motel and I would be calling. And she would stand there and wait for the payphone to ring and we would talk two to three nights a week. How's it going? Um, what's going on in San Diego? What's going on in Panama City? How can I pray for you? Those kind of conversations. But we were apart for 10 weeks. Summer project ends. I go home to my town that I grew up in to see my parents in North Alabama. She comes back here where she grew up and we're making plans to see each other. And I cannot wait to see her. And so I hop in my 1994 Hunter Green Camry and I head down the interstate, I-65, heading south to Birmingham to then head uh, east on Highway Interstate 20. But a few miles north of Birmingham, I had been driving around, and I knew this, but I didn't know that it would eventually become what it became, but I knew that I was driving around on a tire that had slowly been leaking. And for months and months and months, I had just been putting air into it whenever it needed. Well, finally, this tire had had enough. And as I'm going 70 plus miles an hour down the interstate, it explodes, pops. Rubber flying everywhere, me trying to get in control of the car, slowly getting it off the interstate onto the left shoulder. And I'm standing there looking at my shredded tire and thinking about all the things that are in my trunk to get to the spare tire. And when I say that the trunk was full, I don't think that's an adequate, adequate enough explanation for all the junk that I had back there. And so I begin wading through and throwing all this stuff out on the side of the interstate. And then I hear something happening behind me. I turn around and there's a van, not a minivan, a full-size van pulling up behind me. And I'm thinking, this could be good or this could be really bad. Six guys around my age pile out of this van, college students. And I start thinking, I'm gonna get jumped right here on the interstate. They come up to me and they say, hey, can we help you? And I said, uh, sure. Next thing I know, they won't let me do a thing. They're pulling everything out of my trunk. They're pulling out my spare tire. They're pulling out the jack. They're lifting the car up and they replace my tire, the six of them, faster than I uh, could have ever imagined the whole time. I just keep asking one question. Is there anything I can do? Can I please help? And they will not let me help. It took them maybe a total of five minutes, but I, afterwards I talked to them for a few minutes. Who are you? And why are you doing this? And they said, uh, we're college students from Kentucky and we're headed down on spring break to the beach. And that's all I knew about them. To this day, I still think maybe, perhaps I was entertaining angels. It was unbelievable. They, they did everything. They repacked my trunk for me with all the million things that I had in there. And then they just shook my hand and said, man, have a great trip. And I'm thinking, what just happened? But the whole time, I bet I asked 20 times, 
Is there anything I can do? Surely there's something I can do. And they wouldn't let me do a thing. Similarly, just this past year, uh, two of our staff, Craig Swift and Cameron Bible on our worship staff, I had told them that uh, I would love to have a fire pit in my backyard. Next thing I know, they're in my backyard building me a fire pit. And it's awesome, and they wouldn't let me do a thing. But there was something inside of me, this just deep desire that I wanted to contribute so badly. And I think that that presses into, and you may say, well, I don't know, I know some people where this is not true, and maybe you say, I don't know, I don't even know if that's true of me, but I think it's there in all of us. I think it's deep down in all of us, which is this. We have this deep desire in the heart of humanity, there is this insatiable desire even, to want to contribute to a worthy work. We want to be able to say, I was a part of that. I was in that in such a way to where what came out, I had a hand in. Because it makes us feel that we contributed, that we have a sense of ownership in what that good work became. And so there's this reality of what you might call performance that exists within each one of us. And we're trained to perform. We're raised in a society where that is the case, that you get approval, you get acceptance based on your performance, and then you feel good about yourself based on what type of performance you were able to contribute to the end result. And all of life is tailored to continue to bring that out in us, especially in the American culture. We are a deeply individualistic, performance-driven society. And it plays into the heartstrings that are a part of who we are in, a, in our nature. And you never see this, you, the place you see this most on display is in religious pursuit. In religious pursuit is where we see most fully on display, surely there's something I can do Surely, is there not anything that I can do to contribute to how God sees me? And so all of religion, all of religion, we'll talk about this, and we're going to see this today. It's so blatantly clear in the chapter that we're reading today in Acts. All of religion, for the most part, is centered around that hum human natural instinct to perform, to want to contribute to a worthy work. And what we're going to see today in Acts chapter 15 is that the grace of God in Jesus Christ for sinners is the most challenging, yet simultaneously the most freeing truth that we could ever hear. And it's challenging because it rubs against our very nature. But it's freeing. It is unthinkably, unimaginably freeing because it sets us free from that very nature that we think is good. Here we are in Acts chapter 15 where, as Jimmy led us last week, we have continued to progress through the story of the gospel going forward, of the kingdom expanding, of multitudes believing, of Saul now being called Paul 
and Barnabas going on the, what we now call the first missionary journey, Paul would end up going on three missionary journeys by the end of Acts. And as they go all throughout the various regions and proclaiming the gospel, people are believing, but they're also meeting more and more opposition. They're, they're experiencing even more persecution. But the gospel is going forward. Now, if you'll remember, a couple of weeks ago, uh, we were in Acts chapter 10 and 11. And in Acts chapter 10 and 11, we first see that the gospel, that God's design for the good news of Jesus Christ to go forward is to include the Gentiles. And he takes Peter, if you'll remember this, he takes Peter, and through a vision and, and a number of circumstances, he brings Peter to Caesarea to, uh, to share the gospel with this Roman soldier, this centurion named Cornelius. And Cornelius comes to faith, and many in his household come to faith. And for the first time, we see Gentiles, non-Jews, being brought in, explicitly being brought in to the family of God and, and being united with God's people, the Jewish people, the Hebrew people, and being made one in now the new church, if you will. It was Israel as God's chosen people. Now God is saying it's for all nations. God's heart has always been for the nations, but now it is explicitly clear in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we see that in Acts chapter 10 and 11. Now, fast forward to where we're picking up today. Roughly a decade has passed. So for around 10 years, the gospel has continued going forward. This missionary journey has happened with Paul and Barnabas, and people are believing, and Gentiles are believing in, in the hundreds and thousands but the Jews, the Jews are still really, really struggling with this. God is making it explicitly clear, explicitly clear that the Gentiles are to be brought in and to be made one with him and with one another. And there is no longer Jew and Gentile. It's now all are one in Christ. And they're still struggling with this. And one of the things they're most struggling with is that the Gentiles aren't doing the religious things that they should be doing, that the Jews have come to experience is this is what really puts you in a posture of acceptance before God. And the biggest hangup that they have, they have a number of hangups, but the biggest is circumcision. If you know anything about the Old Testament, the sign of the covenant that you are marked out as God's people was that the baby boys on the eighth day of their life were circumcised. And then if you were a Gentile that, were brought, that was brought into the house of Israel and that you were a foreigner, a sojourner who began to believe and, and, and trust in Yahweh, the God of Israel, then you would be circumcised at any age as a male because that was the sign that you had to receive that marked you out. Now, what they were forgetting was that in the Old Testament, God made it very clear that I'm not as concerned, although that's important, I'm not as concerned with the circumcision of your skin. I'm most concerned with the circumcision of your heart, that you would believe upon me and the promise of the one to come and the big overarching picture of what God is up to in bringing all nations unto himself, that there would be a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation who would bow before me. And it would not be about the circumcision of the skin, but of the heart. And they were forgetting that. 
And what they had done is they had taken something really good and they had made it about religious performance. That you have to receive the sign of circumcision to be accepted by God. That was their message. So this is where we pick up in Acts chapter 15. Listen to what it says. uh, They're back, by the way, Paul and Barnabas are back in Antioch where they started on their first missionary journey. And they're back in Antioch and they're sharing stories about all that God has done. And people are amazed at all the people throughout the regions who have come to faith in Jesus and all these non-Jews. And they're just going, this is wild. But then listen to verse one. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers. This is what they were teaching. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That's a huge statement. You cannot be saved from your sins unless you're circumcised. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So they're taking it to the highest level, think of like, a, you might wanna think of like an American judicial system, like we're gonna take it to our local courts, well no, now we're gonna take it to our state Supreme Court, well no, now we're gonna take it to all the way to the top, to the Supreme Court of our country. That's kind of what's happening here. If they're arguing about this and Paul and Barnabas are not making any headway with these people that are teaching this, and so they go to Jerusalem. The elders of the church there in Antioch probably said to them, hey, you need to take this to the big dogs. You go to the apostles, to the leaders of the church in Jerusalem, and we gotta sort this out. This is huge, because if we can't agree on this, then we're disagreeing on the essence of our faith. So they go to Jerusalem. Verse three, so being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in details the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. I love that even on their way to Jerusalem, they're continuing to share and encourage the brothers along the way. And these Gentile people groups are celebrating and encouraged in what they're hearing. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So now we get even a little bit more of an insight into what they're really saying. It's not just circumcision. It's all these other rituals as well, this this religious performance that has to be in place if you really want to be accepted by God. Okay, yeah, fine, faith in Jesus, yes, okay, but are you doing all of these other things in addition to it? Because that's what really makes you saved. That was the message. So there's three points I wanna give you this morning. Here's the first one that that we see in uh, in the first five verses. What we see is that there's something happening here that is a life-stealing burden of religious performance. There's a life-stealing burden of religious performance. A few years ago, many years ago now, it's probably been 15 years at least, I was visiting a friend at their house and uh, Rachel and his wife had gone out, do some shopping, whatever, and so it was just me and my friend, this was before we had children. And we're sitting in the house talking, we get a knock on the door, Uh, two people come from another faith to share with us the good news, according to them, of what we should believe. As we begin to interact with them, they assure us, we believe what you believe. 
Yes, of course, no matter what we said, well, yeah, of course we believe that. And we would try to say, well, I don't think you do, and we'd share more, and there was disagreement. So finally, at a point in the conversation, we began to ask the classic questions that if you've been in or around church, you've probably heard these that were first developed, if I'm remembering correctly, in the early 80s as a part of this movement called Evangelism Explosion And if I'm not mistaken, I think uh, Dr. D. James Kennedy came up with these because I knew them as the Kennedy questions. But they were always helpful to decipher what is it that you're placing your hope in? And so we asked him this question, say, okay, okay, what if we're sitting here right now and all of a sudden a a car just comes flying through this living room and takes us all out and the next thing we know, we're all standing before God. And he says to us, now I'm I'm not saying this is what's, how it's gonna go down, I have no idea. It's just an illustration, okay? Don't send me an email. Um, And he says to us, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? And both of these young men responded, well, I've, I've tried to be faithful, I've tried to be a good person, I've done all that I can to, to do everything possible to please you. It was all performance, it was all, this is what I bring to the table. And so we listened to their answers and then we said, well, okay, based on that answer that you've just given, how sure are you on a scale of one to 10, 10 being absolutely 100% sure, how sure are you that God would say, come on in, enter the joy of my presence? And one of the men said, well, I guess I would probably say a seven, And the other guy said, yeah, I don't know, maybe a six, maybe a seven. And my friend answered, and he said this. He said, I I don't wanna be offensive, but I just, I gotta say something here. You came to my door with what you're calling good news. And you've devoted your life to this belief system, right? And they said, yes. Can you explain to me how it's good news that I also devote my life to your belief system, and at the end of it all, I have a 60 to 70% chance of getting in. How is that good news? And they didn't have an answer. And here's why they didn't have an answer, because they were a part of a system of belief that is all too common. It's not just their segment of their uh, you know, belief system over here. It's religiosity in general, religion in general, that teaches us that we're in this pattern of life robbing, life stealing burden of religious performance. Because there's something deep within every single human that says that if there is a God, if there is a God, then there must be something I can do to contribute to this equation in such a way that he would accept me. It's like me standing over these guys changing my tires. Surely there's something I can do. And they said, no, there's not. And we come to the table of religion and we say the same thing. Surely there is something that we do that in some way props us up as more acceptable than others because of what I have religiously performed. And if you look at every religious belief system in the world, every single one, You peel back the layers, you peel back the onion layers of how they are presented, they all get down to the core of being based on the very same thing, and that is religious performance. 
something that we must do to appease the God that we believe exists in such a way that he would accept us, that we would get in at the end. But there's one exception. There's one exception, and it's Christianity. It's this whole Jesus thing. Listen to what happens. Watch what happens in the text. Verse six, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you. That by my mouth, so he's, he's thinking back to Cornelius. He's thinking back about 10 years earlier. But by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts, here it is, by faith. Now, Therefore, why are you, oh, I love this, listen to this. Why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? In other words, you remember the words of Jesus? When Jesus is teaching, he says, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That is an unbelievably good word for a people who have had the neck, uh, the, the burden and the yoke of religious performance around their neck for all of their lives. And Peter's saying to these Jewish believers, brothers, you know what a burden it is to try to achieve the law and make God happy based on our religious performance. You know that it's not possible, so why would you require it of the Gentiles? You know that we can never achieve the law perfectly, and you know that the law was not given so that we would. The law was given to show us the holiness of God the goodness of God, the standard of God, and ultimately to condemn us as ones who can never achieve that standard. So why would you put a yoke of slavery upon them? That's what Peter's saying. Now, this is really interesting that this is coming from Peter. Because if you go to Galatians chapter two, we get insight into those who came to Antioch. You remember you go back to the first verse of chapter 15? that I just read a few moments ago, and it says, and some men came from Antioch and were teaching among them that you must be circumcised in order to be saved. Well, Paul writes in Galatians chapter two that when Peter came to Antioch, oh, oh, connections are being made. Oh, Peter was a part of this group. Peter, the apostle Peter, one of the very leaders of the church had been sucked into this religious performance mentality. He couldn't shake his his Jewish roots in that sense. And even though he was the one that God used to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, to Cornelius as the first Gentile to believe in the early church, he was still, he couldn't shake, well, there's gotta be something here in our religious performance. And so Paul says in Galatians chapter two, uh, verses 11 through 14, he says, I opposed him to his face because he, although being a Jew, was, was acting like Gentiles should, should be like Jews. He was being hypocritical and he was being uh, discrimination against the, the Gentiles. And Paul opposes him to his face and he says, because you are not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. 
Do you, you, Peter, you of all people know that this is by grace through faith alone in Jesus. Please don't put a burden on the Gentiles that God never put on them. So Peter stands up and he's saying, after Paul's rebuke in the past, it's by faith, guys. Look at verse 11. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Verse 12, and all the assembly fell silent and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related, related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. So Peter has stood up and shared. By the way, this is the first ecumenical council of the church. We wouldn't see this happen again until 325 AD when the Council of Nicaea happens. This is the first time the church leaders come together and decide on something incredibly controversial to define for the church what is it that we believe. So Peter has stood up and shared. Now Paul and Barnabas have, sta have stood up and they've shared, hey, look, listen to what all happened on our, on our missionary journey. But then thirdly, James stands up. And we see in this text that James has clearly become the senior pastor, if you will, of the church in Jerusalem. He's the leader of the church. He has the final say. He has the voice in this context. This brother of Jesus who long didn't believe is now the leader of the Jerusalem church. And he stands up in verse 12. Verse 13, and he says, after they finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon, he's referring to Peter, he's calling him by his Jewish Hebrew name, which means that they're incredibly close. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles. And listen to this, to take from them a people for his name, all the Jews knew exactly what he was doing. He's using Old Testament Hebrew language to say this is now true of the Gentiles. When we see throughout the Old Testament, God says over and over again, I'm taking a people for my name. And they saw it as Jesus is only, or God is only calling the Hebrews, only calling the Israelites to himself. And now James is saying that same language and I'm gonna pull a people together for me, from them, for my namesake, now includes all nations. And with this word of the prophets, we agree, just as it is written, and then he quotes Amos. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen, I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles all the nations, all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. And so God is reiterating through James, through this council, this Jerusalem council, that this has been my plan all along. My heart has always been for the nations. I was never a discriminatory God against all these other people groups. It was always centered on Jesus coming in such a way that the nations would come. And through the salvation of grace alone, by faith alone, and Christ alone, be saved. So the second point is this. Yes, there's a life-stealing burden of religious performance, but there's also the life-giving peace of the gospel of grace. The life-giving peace of the gospel of grace. This peace is, the reason I use the word peace is we talk about this often at Perimeter. What does that mean? Well, first it means vertically that we are now at peace with God. 
that the shalom of God, that the flourishing of God is now taking root in the heart of man in such a way to where we are fully accepted by him by faith alone. But secondarily, and this is what Paul was calling Peter out for in Galatians chapter two, we get peace with one another. Uh, it, is, it is really impossible to overstate the hatred that Jew and Gentile had with one another. This is why the Jews and Gentiles, 10 years after the Gentiles have been brought into the church, are still arguing about this. And God is saying there is a peace now that brings down all the walls of hostility that exist between Jew and Gentile. There is no man-made line of delineation that can exist between the power of the gospel to unite people to one another as we together are united to God. There is a life-giving peace that is only found in the gospel of grace. I want, to, I want you to see how this looks. And uh, this feels weird to draw out what I'm about to draw out in front of Randy Pope. <laughs> Randy came up with this diagram years ago and he first shared it with me. He probably doesn't even remember this. He first shared it with me when I was visiting. I was on staff with, with crew and I was visiting and my parents were here and we were here with, with Rachel's family. And afterwards, we went to lunch at Randy and Carol's house. And as we're uh, getting ready to eat, Randy says to me, my, my dad and myself, I've got to show you something that I've come up with recently. And he shows us this diagram, and it had such an impact on me that I took it back to the campus, and this began to be the way for years afterwards that I shared the gospel with people who were caught up in religious performance. So this is how it looks. Uh, I already said that every religion in the world is based on man's performance, okay? What is it that we can do, and this is the heart of it, what is it that I need to do to get to God, so to speak? So I might even say, yes, it's by the grace of God, but it's coupled with works. There's something that I have to be able to do as a part of the mixture to be able to make God happy with me. And so there's, there's, a, there's a part of this that we'll call self-righteousness. What is it within myself that I can do to be right before God, to be seen as righteous before him? Every belief system in the world other than Christianity at the core is based on this. What is it that I have to do to appease the God that I believe is true? Now, what the gospel says is this, and this is at the heart of Acts 15 and the argument that they're having, is what the gospel says is that it's not man's performance, but it's fully and completely the grace of God. What is grace? Grace is us getting the complete opposite of what we deserve. Undeserved merit that God would give to us what we don't in any way deserve. Because what do we deserve? We deserve wrath and punishment because of our sin. And that's why we think that there's something we have to do to make it right. But God says there's nothing you can do to ever measure it up to the standard of perfection. And so what you couldn't do, I have done for you. And through the person of Jesus and faith in him, we'll call this declarative righteousness, that you will be declared righteous, not based on your work, but based on the work of, of another, that based on the work of someone else, namely Christ, you receive your righteousness. This is grace. Now, I want to show you something that's really, really important. If I ended the diagram there, we just stopped right there. You would have every reason to ask me the question, the same question that the Romans were gonna ask Paul. 
Because Paul in Romans 6 says, well, what shall we say then? If grace abounds where sin abounds, then let's just sin it up. Why, if, if I'm covered by grace and there's nothing required of me to make me right with God, and there's nothing I can do to lose this salvation, then why not just sin like crazy? And there's a couple of answers to that. One is that God, upon faith in him, he puts the Holy Spirit in our hearts and he begins to change us slowly but surely and change our desires. And part of that change looks like this, and this is where it is so critical to understand. When we have experienced the grace of God through Christ, we begin to develop a love for him. We love him. This is what's missing in religious performance. You don't have a love for God. You obey out of fear. But when you are the recipient of unthinkable grace, you love a God that would do such a thing for you. And it's actually love, not fear, not performance, but love that the work is completely done. That I don't have to do anything but receive the finished work of Jesus. It's love that drives, and look, it's not performance, it's obedience. It's, I don't, it's not, oh, I have to do this. It's, oh, I want to do this because a God that would, that would save me by grace in such a way, uh, my heart is being united to his and I love him. And here's the thing. Many of us know this. Many of us know this and we have believed upon this grace, but here's the catch. Many of us still live right here. Even in the church, even as recipients of God's grace, even as those who have believed upon Jesus by faith alone and grace alone, we go back to what's most natural within us. Isn't there something I can do? And we live in this trap of religious performance, just like Peter. Peter knew the gospel, but he was still running back to his religious performance as though that had merit before God. And Paul says, stop it. Rest in the finished work of Jesus. Let him change your heart and let the love of God in you drive you to obedience. This is why Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. That wasn't a burden. That wasn't, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. It's, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. Because my love drives what I love and you'll walk in that. So the third thing, and this will literally be 30 seconds. The third thing is that there is a life-defining declaration of the early church in Acts chapter 15. Because what happens is James says, here's what we're gonna do, boys. We're gonna send a letter out to all the Gentile churches that says you don't have to be circumcised. Jesus has done it all. Rest in his, in his finished work. And he gives them four instructions that all are basically saying, look, but be conscientious of the Jews. They're, they're, they have uh, systems in place uh, that they're gonna continue to honor in their Jewish culture and be conscientious of that. But as for you, you're free. There is no religious performance. Jesus has performed in your place. This is the gospel of grace. This is the most challenging yet most freeing truth you could ever hear. Why is it most challenging? Because we rub against it in every way. Surely there's something I can do. And God says through Jesus, it's done. 
it's done. And the church from this point forward is distinctly united because of the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. My dad was in college with Randy. My dad grew up in a, uh, in a religious culture that taught a combination of grace and works. That yes, it's by grace you are saved, but you gotta bring some stuff to the table. You gotta be circumcised, if you will. So my dad gets to college and he thinks that he understands Christianity. And isn't this interesting, the way God brings things full circle, it was through Randy and his friend group that my dad began to understand the gospel of grace. And it floored him. And so my dad and my mom taught me the gospel of grace. And now I'm sharing a diagram of Randy Pope's on this stage when he had such an impact on my father. That's grace. God is good. Do you believe in the gospel of grace or are you caught in the trap of religious performance? If you're caught in the trap, today is the day to be set free by the grace of God. Father, would you speak to us? Would you teach us? Would you show us your grace? Would you deliver us from religiosity and lead us into the deep, abiding, wondrous relationship with Jesus who's done it all? And would you do it for your glory? We want to sing to you, O God, the Holy One of Israel, the one who in all of your goodness and all of your wisdom, you set forth a gospel that would challenge us to our core and free us to the other, uttermost. We want to sing to you, O holy God, for you are worthy of all of our praise. Receive our praise now in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Let's sing together. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.